Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Apes at the San Diego Zoo have been vaccinated against COVID-19, and other primates will soon get the shot. We'll talk to Jonathan Wozen about that. Then, business editor Diana McCabe shares a moving story about her mother's time in a Japanese internment camp. First, the news. More than 700 people at a temporary homeless shelter in the San Diego Convention Center will begin moving into smaller shelters the week of March 22nd. The center isn't expected to host any events in the foreseeable future. Instead, it could become a vaccination site. Nathan Fletcher, chairman of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, made the announcement Friday. He said the convention center could become a drive through vaccination site or possibly the county's next super site. For nearly a year, the convention center has been the site of the city's 1,300-bed shelter. It opened due to concerns that the coronavirus could easily spread through smaller bridge shelters. California's reopening blueprint is now allowing sports venues and theme parks and other kinds of outdoor venues to reopen in a limited fashion. That's as long as the region reaches the red tier. The new guidelines would allow the San Diego Padres to fill up to 20% of the seats at Petco Park. Those guidelines also apply to outdoor concert venues. Theme parks, including Legoland and Disneyland, will be able to operate at 15% of their full capacity in the red tier. Even if the region does not escape the purple tier by April 1st, a small number of fans will be allowed to attend any outdoor sports or live entertainment venue with attendance capped at 100 or fewer. More than 300,000 San Diego gas and electric customers who are still on tiered pricing plans won't have to worry about paying a high usage charge this summer. The California Public Utilities Commission on Thursday voted to eliminate the charge. SDG&E officials lobbied the commission to get rid of it after a hot summer in 2018 resulted in high bills for some customers living in inland areas. Nine great apes at the San Diego Zoo are now vaccinated against COVID-19. They're the first non-human primates to receive an experimental vaccine meant for animals. Four orangutans and five bonobos have been vaccinated so far, and the zoo is planning to immunize another three bonobos and a gorilla soon. These species, along with chimpanzees, are the closest cousins to humans, placing them at risk of contracting the coronavirus. Zoo reporter Jonathan Wozen has the story. Jonathan, you wrote about apes at the zoo getting a vaccine this week. And in your story, it said that the vaccines were voluntarily given. How exactly does an animal consent to being vaccinated? That's kind of an interesting question. So, yes, so the apes at the San Diego Zoo actually get vaccines pretty regularly. They get the flu vaccine every year the way that people do. They get the measles vaccine. Um, So they're closely related closely enough related to people that there is a risk of viruses jumping from uh, zookeepers to animals. So because they're routinely getting vaccines and they routinely get other kinds of medical tests, uh, oftentimes the animal caretakers can get them to sit down, stay put for a second as they're uh, getting checked out or getting a quick shot. Um, So the ones who were willing to do that have been vaccinated. There are nine so far. Uh, four orangutans and five bonobos. Uh, a few of the animals, the younger animals, were a little more restless and kind of didn't <laughs> want to get their shot just yet. So there are about four uh, additional apes that haven't been vaccinated, but that may be in the next few weeks. So basically, it means that they, they sit in place <laughs> and allow you to vaccinate them, which is 
Kind of. I love it. And also animal skeptics. That's great. Just like humans. Um, well, what yeah. can you tell us about these vaccines? You wrote that they are experimental. How so? Yeah, experimental in the sense that they are still being tested in other animals, uh, minks, dogs, and, and cats. But th this particular vaccine from an uh, animal health company called Zoetis, which actually used to be part of Pfizer, which now is one of the companies that makes a COVID-19 COVID vaccine that people are getting. But this company's vaccine basically is a, is a protein. It's a piece of the coronavirus, pretty similar in that way to a company called uh, Novax, Novavax, actually that's testing a vaccine in people in large scale trials. So the idea is you give the immune system this protein to look at and it learns to mount an immune response to it. That way you can protect that person or in this case that ape from the coronavirus when they're exposed in the future. So we know that, uh, for example, bonobos are actually more closely related to people than they are to gorillas. And about a little bit more than a month ago, the eight gorillas at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park developed COVID, probably because they were uh, one of their caretakers had an asymptomatic infection. So somebody who wasn't coughing or anything, but was carrying the virus. Uh, wearing wearing a mask and all that, but still carrying the virus. So clearly apes can get it. We learned that about a month ago, and that was partially the impetus for vaccinating the other um, apes in, in the, at the San Diego Zoo recently. Yeah, you you know you mentioned the um, gorilla outbreak. I do remember that. I think we've also heard of like big cats and zoos in New York getting coronavirus. What other animals are or are thought to be susceptible to? Yeah, well, dogs, cats, minks are some of the ones that come to mind. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the virus originally jumped from uh, a bat or a sort of horseshoe bat specifically to people uh, in, in, uh, in China and may have gone through another species before getting to humans. That's a little less clear. But yeah, there definitely are other animals that can contract this virus. There's not a lot of strong evidence just yet that these animals uh, have play a, a major role in transmitting the virus back to people. So, you know, if you test positive for COVID, you probably got it from somebody else somewhere else versus your dog or your cat based on what we know so far. And because the vaccine is experimental, I mean, is there is there a, a similar push to create animal vaccines? I don't think so. I think the emphasis clearly is and still should be on vaccinating as many people as possible against the coronavirus and, uh, you know, in, in, yeah, so I think that's really still where the, the focus and, and the push is at right now. Uh, but because, you know, we are talking about, uh, you know, species that are in some cases 98 or you know, more than that percent closely related to us in terms of their, their DNA, their genetic material, uh, you know, we know that they can get many of the same infections that, that uh, we can get uh, and you know orangutans and bonobos are fairly you know, rare species uh, both in, in the wild and, and uh, you know in, in zoos so I think there's a sense that um, you know there's kind of a level of, of risk here uh, even if they're protecting the, the zoo staff and uh, it's also an opportunity to you know, learn a little bit more about the immune systems of these animals which we know are pretty close to people's but you know, you definitely get variation between species. So they're in the process of doing some blood work and looking at you know, the antibody, the immune responses that 
some of the vaccinated apes produce and that'll be helpful because you can't really think about doing that type of type of study out in the wild. So we'll, we'll learn some new things about uh, you know, the biology here too. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Anytime. Now let's turn to opinion. Diana McCabe is the business editor at the San Diego Union Tribune, but this week for the opinion section, she wrote a very personal account of her mother's time in an internment camp during World War II. I wanna go ahead and start with a reading. I keep this silver pin with my mom's name, Misako, on my nightstand. She got it while incarcerated at the post-war relocation center in Arizona when she was a girl. Mom referred to this place as camp, and I always thought she had a lot of fun there. They had clubs, sports teams, picnics. I later learned this camp was in the desert and had barbed wire. Mom and her family were forced to leave their home in Delano without her father, who had been rounded up by the FBI. And her Obachan, grandmother, died in this desolate place. Thank you for sharing that, Diana. Will you tell me more about the piece you wrote? Um, sure. I, I actually didn't intend to write any type of commentary, um, but because of the culture bulletin board we have at work, it just was sort of an opportunity to talk about my family history. And uh, the pin that I talk about in the column is something that truly does sit right by my bed. It's on a nightstand and I see it every day. And February 19th was coming up and that is the Remembrance Day for Japanese Americans. We remember when FDR signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized people of Japanese ancestry to be incarcerated in prisons. So I thought I would just write a few words on it. And that's how it started. I, I almost did not write this because I felt everybody knew about it. I felt people who knew me at work would know about it and they would just be tired of me talking about it. But there was just something that night after I got off deadline, I said, I'm going to write this. I'm just going to write it for me. And that's what I did. So uh, the pin was a way to get into the story, to talk about my mother's experiences at Poston. I'm so glad you did write it. It's such an emotional piece. Truly, I teared up like three sentences into it. Um, you know, it's such a it's such a shameful part of our history. It's such an unfortunate part of our history. And to have a personal connection to it, it's just really sad and powerful. Um, can you, so when you, when you wrote this, you wrote that your mom always referred to it as camp. They had clubs, sports teams, picnics. I mean, in some ways she, she talked to you about it in a way as if it was fun, but like, what was her experience there? That was my mother's experience. She went into camp when she was about 14. And as growing up, we grew up away from California, away from my mother's family. And so her references to camp, we thought it was like 4-H camp. We thought, oh, this sounds really great. And it just, over time, we realized, wow, she really wasn't talking about the kind of camps that, that we all go to. And she was very 
optimistic about camp. Very, she downplayed a lot of things. And that was later on as an adult, when I talked to her, she said, you know, where I grew up in Delano, it was different. It was not exciting. And, and so that camp experience was like that for her. She went to school, she had a job, she got to stay with her friends. And so for her, it was exciting. She didn't realize that her civil rights had been trampled on. She didn't look at it that way. And that was very different than a lot of people that she grew up with, some of um, my aunties who were older, how they viewed it. In fact, I once interviewed the author of Farewell to Manzanar. I went to listen to her talk. And we were talking about my mother. She said, oh, your mother has, you know, she's, she's in denial. She's, there's something wrong with your mom that she doesn't remember it the way we remember it. And, and I found out that was true and not true. The older generations felt very differently about camp than what my mom did. How old were you when you realized it wasn't a fun 4-H camp? And what was your response to learning that? Well, I didn't realize she was quote unquote historical until I was in junior high. And I, it probably wasn't until, this sounds awful, but probably until high school that we realized, oh, so your whole family had to leave and your, your father was rounded up by the FBI and didn't come home one day and you were all separated, you were separated from your parents and then they were all reunited at camp. And it, it didn't dawn on any of us until we were much older. And then the outrage of, the, of all of us set in when we were in college, like what, how did this happen? And how come we didn't learn about it in school? And how come nobody talked about it? Like no one talked about it. And that's when we started asking questions and she started to tell us more. And my aunts told us more things. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's strange that you didn't know about it. I mean, you know, of course I, I knew about it, but I didn't really understand it, I think, until last year I read that um, graphic novel, They Called Us the Enemy by George Takei. And it, it was so upsetting, you know, it's not just rounding up people, putting them in camps, and it was taking away everything they owned, you know, and, and they didn't get it back. They didn't get it back when they were released. And so, um, yeah, just unfortunate. But can you tell me more about your grandfather's experience? I mean, you mentioned your your aunts, they, they didn't take it well, but what was his experience there? I didn't know my, we call um, grandfather Jichan in Japanese. So they didn't know Jichan because he died shortly after they were released um, in 1945, which is quite sad. But he was someone who came over to the United States on his own. He was 12 or 13, very, very young because he didn't think there was anything left for him in Japan. And he just, started out on his own and he worked his way up to um, managing vineyards. Anybody who's been through the San Joaquin Valley knows that, that they have like table grapes and that was his thing. And I've walked down the road of the vineyards that he managed and I've seen the property that they managed and that was his life. He was very proud of that. That's what my mother has said. But when they took all of that away, he became very sullen, almost grumpy, 
um, he just, there wasn't much for him to do. I remember looking at the FBI file that my mother got years and years later, and it had a lot of correspondence between Jichan and his son, who was allowed outside of camp after a certain time because he joined the US Army. And there was a lot of letters asking about, hey, where are my tools? How are the, what does the farm look like? Where, where is everything? And he was worried because that he was never going to get that back. And so he was very, very much a changed man. And he died unhappy. He died. So I also had an aunt who was a few years older than my mom, who I'm named after, Chio. My middle name's Chio. And she testified at redress. So she was very emotional about it, about how their lives had changed, how they had a chunk of their life taken away from them. She's she was very emotional and very, very bitter about it. How the reason like I don't speak Japanese because they were told not to speak outside the house and they barely knew they had to go to school, but they were not to teach their children. They were to be American. So that's why there are some things I'll be talking and all of a sudden I'll spit out a Japanese word because that's what was said in my household. But at all times, they were taught to be American. You wrote that in the 90s, your mother received an apology and a check from the government. What did that mean to her? That, that's tough for me to answer because she, she obviously for me was excited about it, but she downplayed so many things. It was it's hard to tell, but I don't think she ever spent that 20,000. I think it was all invested. That was how my parents were. Um, and that letter with the apology was framed. And it wasn't put away in the boxes like so many pictures and things. It was placed in our family room on the mantle. And it, you, you couldn't miss it when you came down, you could see it. And it's, I wish I actually had it here with me. I'm going to go back and get it, but it, it was there. And um, I think that it just, it meant something to her that it was acknowledged that they had spent this time there. And she, I think she wished that um, some of her other family members had gotten that. Um, some of her sisters and, and her mother had passed at that time. So they did not get an apology or the letter. And finally, February 19th is the day that President Roosevelt signed Executive Order uh, 9066. As you said, your family recognizes that date. How, how do you, I don't think celebrate is the right word, but how do you remember that day? We don't really celebrate that day. We remember. And sometimes it might just be we text each other or we're just thinking of it. And this year, though, since I had an opportunity to pass along this piece of information as a cultural event, I thought about it a little, a little bit more, probably too much. Um, but there is probably several times during the year that we think of her and we think of that, what their family went through. And even more so with the response that I've gotten, like on all the Japanese American um, bulletin boards um, on Facebook, it's incredible. Like it, it may not resonate with people who don't understand it, but people within that community, it's been nonstop for me today. 
and I found people who knew my mother's family, and I found a long-lost relative. Wow, from publishing the story? Yeah, they are somebody who I knew um, his parents. They were my mother's cousins, and as a child, I would go out there, but he was much older, so I never had any contact. Somebody saw my story, and this is up in, um, like in El Moro, and they pinned it to some judo bulletin board, and then they said, hey, this says Katano. Don't you have family members who are Katano? And he looked at it, and he's like, I think I'm related to her. Wow. And he emailed me, and I was on the phone with him today, and now we're planning um, a Katano reunion because there are lots of people, but what happens is the older people pass away, and there are very few people left who remember their stories. And I'm one of them now who remember the stories. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing this story um, with us. And I hope people will go online and read it. But yeah, what a powerful story to keep alive. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. You can find Diana's story at sandiegouniontribune.com slash opinion slash commentary. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Have a great weekend.